and welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Brent McKim. Brent is the president of the Jefferson County, Kentucky Teachers Association, as well as the president of the National Council of Urban Education Associations. Importantly for us, he's also a bit of a sports fan and just so happens to live and work in what, for this week at least, is the horse racing capital of the world, Louisville, Kentucky. Brent, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Thanks, Doug. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to see you. I'm looking forward to our discussion because I think you and I share a similar interest in the 1970s big red machine. So I, I look forward to diving yeah. into that a bit. But I think most importantly, I, I attempted to get Louisville right, but I know that there are multiple pronunciations. What do the natives of uh, Louisville, Kentucky prefer? Uh, we call it Louisville. And the way that I uh, help people fool the residents is uh, it's basically three syllables. The first is like the guy's name, Lou, like Lou Gehrig. Uh, uh, like you're you're thinking what you're going to say next. Um, and then vol, like the first syllable in vulture. So you put together, you got Lou, uh, vol, Louisville. There it is. Okay. I will work on that for the remainder of this episode, and hopefully I will get a passing grade by by my teacher by the end here. But I, good tips, pro tips for sure. Um, so, Brent, what is some of your earliest recollections of, of being a sports fan? Well, uh, since we we were talking about uh, Louisville and the Derby, I'll start with that. Um, I think one of my earliest uh, memories uh was what a big deal secretariat was. And um, I, I remember it was a big deal when secretariat won the Derby. And at that point, um, people were really starting to question whether a horse could, could ever win a triple crown again, because they were saying, oh, horses are so specialized and the distances are different and what it takes to win one race, they could not uh when one of the the Preakness or the Belmont stakes. So uh, after the, um, I guess the Preakness, I think Preakness is the second race, mm -hmm. uh, which yep. race is the second one. Um, and Secretariat had won that and, and by a wider margin than even the Derby. People were like, wow, it, you know, been, I don't know, 35 or 40 years or something. Is this possible that you could have a triple crown winner? And then um, when they had the uh, final leg of the Belmont Stakes, of course, Secretary won that by some ridiculous like 20 lengths. Um, you couldn't even see the other horses. And it was a really big deal. So I have, uh, I have memories of that. I even... Uh, can remember as a, being as a kid, like the the other favorite was a horse named Sham, and I can remember that from just fairly fairly early age. Perhaps Sham was aptly named, as it turned out. Perhaps so, yes. Uh, um, and that I think was... Sham beat had a faster time than many Derby winners, but had the unfortunate. Uh, the situation of being uh, in a race with Secretariat. Sure. Now that this is the 50th anniversary of 
secretariat's win, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't it, wasn't it 73, I think? I think that's right, yes. And uh, to celebrate that, among other things, uh, if you come, you don't have to come to the Derby, but if you come to Churchill Downs at any point, uh, there is the Kentucky Derby Museum that's uh, part of the Downs facility. And it's a really uh, cool museum. It's it's an awesome place. And you could spend quite a bit of time in there. But they have um, dedicated a really uh, wonderful, I have not been to it yet, but everyone says it was a really wonderful uh, display, uh, a whole section, a whole portion of the museum now that's dedicated to Secretariat, who still has the fastest time for the Derby that, of any horse that's ever run the Derby. And I'm trying to recall from some of our previous conversations, were you um, living in Kentucky at that time, or were you at that time still in you Southern Indiana native, right? Yes, I grew up um, in one way you could say I grew up in the greater Louisville area. Uh, I grew up about a half hour west, almost due west of Louisville. But in between where I lived in downtown Louisville, there was um, the Ohio River. And when you cross that, that puts you in Indiana. So I grew up in Harrison County, Indiana, near Corridon, uh, which was the uh, at one point the state capital. In fact, the state capital for uh, what wound up being five different states eventually. Um, but uh, it was pretty much the greater Louisville area. So um, that's, I, you could say, I'm a lifelong Louisville person. Sure. And beyond, you know, certainly there is a, an annual event there at Churchill Downs. They have other racing too. Was, was horse racing something that you were acutely aware of as a youngster or was it just primarily for the Derby? Um, much more so for the Derby. But um, as you say, they're the they have a, a spring meets and fall meets, and that's in the news. And back then, they even they had uh, Louisville Downs where they had harness racing, where they have sort of you know the chariot of a thing behind the horses. Yeah. And they uh, and I can remember that being on the radio. They would have uh, each day, you know, the winners of the various races at uh, Louisville Downs. Huh. And what other sports were you perhaps interested in um, in the formative years? <laughs> um, I think when when I got to middle school, I I got particularly interested in baseball because I started collecting baseball cards. You know, like I walk up to the dairy dip and get like an ice cream cone and pack of uh, baseball cards. Um, and that rectangular piece of pink stuff that they asserted as bubble gum, what or some kind of gum. Uh, but I, that then I would listen to the Reds on the radio. And back then, um, the AM radio, they broadcast all the Reds games uh, with Joe Nuxall and Marty Brenneman. Uh, Joe Nuxall evidently uh, had been a major league pit pitcher and had the interesting distinction of being the youngest major league pitcher. I think he started at age 15, yeah. um, which uh, as far as I know, that record still stands. Uh, but he, he um, 
those two would call the Reds games and I'd uh, listen to the Reds games on the radio and sort of lay out the baseball cards uh, to see who was um, who was playing. And you could look at the statistics and all that. And, uh, you know, I also I liked football a lot and pulled for the Bengals, which was a, a special kind of difficult uh, to be a sports fan. It was really bad back then to be a Bengals I mean, it was wonderful to, I love the Bengals, I still do, but it was uh, bad to be a Bengals fan because they probably would have been a division-winning team if they weren't in the same division as the Pittsburgh Steelers back when it was, uh, when they were pretty much invincible. You know, Terry Bradshaw, Lynn Swan, Mean Joe Green, uh, the whole, all of that. Um, so, you you can pretty much always notch up two losses right there uh, <laughs> because you lost at home and you lost away to the Steelers and then the rest of the season you know you could maybe have a chance at and they did get a wild card I think once but it was um, and they they after you know after the Steelers were no longer quite where where they were they did get into the Super Bowl and have been there a few times and lost every time so it's it's tough to be a Bengals fan sometimes you're, you're talking to somebody who lives in Detroit so um, <laughs> there you go never been to the Super Bowl 1957 the last time they were you know a champion and that predates my existence on this planet by a good decade so um, it's better to have been there and lost I think than to have never been so congratulations to the Bengals and I will say uh at- at the risk of dating myself, uh, as if I haven't already, I guess, I can remember when I was very young, the ABA was still in existence and Louisville had an American Basketball Association team, the Louisville, the Kentucky Colonels. And um, at that point, the Kentucky Colonels were in the ABA and the uh, Indianapolis Pacers were in the ABA and so forth. And eventually, the ABA folded and some of the teams rolled into and expanded the the um, NBA, but the Kentucky Colonels did not quite make the cut for that. So we've never, we've always, basketball was like a University of Louisville endeavor for Louisvilleians yeah. and still is. Although not a great um, year to be a Cardinals men's basketball fan the ladies had a pretty good season but the men not so much the men not so much that's that's true (laughs) um you you brought up basketball and certainly growing up in indiana but being right there on the border of kentucky i i i I know that high school basketball is certainly a major and, and was you know during our younger years major event in both of those states was that true in in the area where you lived as well? Yeah, you know, there's the old movie Hoosiers, um, which I think was very accurate. And when when I was in high school, um, cable TV was just starting to make its way in, out of cities and into more rural areas. Most people didn't have it; a few people did, and but the in those rural areas like where we were on Friday nights, uh, the recreation was to go 
through high school basketball games. And I know our entire gym was completely full every time. And they even put extra bleachers up on the, at one end of the gymnasium, there was like a stage for performances. They'd put folding bleachers up on there to hold more people. And it was just be uh, literally absolutely packed and sold out every time. And you get uh, at a, and most of those were just home spectators. You, if you got on a bus to go to an away game, then, um, Wherever you went, that stadium was completely sold out with local folks there. And I do remember if you fast forward, um, I went to college my first few uh, four years. I taught in Indianapolis before coming to Louisville, back closer to home. And when I went to my first Louisville high school basketball game, there were, you know, maybe 50-ish people total from both teams in the stands, and um, it didn't it didn't seem right. So uh, it just I had to recalibrate my entire brain. Yeah, um, at that positioning where where um, Harrison County is, did the Indiana teams play some games against Kentucky teams? Do you recall, or was it primarily all Indiana on Indiana at that point? At that point, it was all Indiana on Indiana from at least my point of view. Now, there may have been uh, a few teams that were so good that they might cross state lines to play another team. I know when I taught in Indianapolis, I taught at uh, on the west side in uh, at Ben Davis High School, and their football team was so good that they would go over to Illinois or Ohio to play other high school football teams that were, you know, sort of in a league with them. Yeah. Um, And my geography fails me, but certainly your era and relative location in Southern Indiana, was that anywhere near uh, French Lick where a certain Larry Joe Bird uh, first plied the trade of hoops player? Uh, we were not real close to French Lick. Um, I French Lick, I guess that would be like I'm trying to, th- uh, Spring Valley, I think, is yeah. the is this uh high school there. And we we were close enough that we would sometimes play Spring Valley, but um, it would generally it'd usually be if there was some kind of a not so much basketball, but like if there was an invitational uh, cross country or track meet or something like that, where everyone from the region would go, you'd sometimes play against Spring Valley. But I don't remember, particularly remember us playing Spring Valley. And I don't think we wound up, I don't think we played against Larry Bird when he was there. Sure. Uh, which is probably good for us, <laughs> no doubt. Probably, you're right. Um so any recollections of the first time you went to a, a major event, whether it be a, you know, either college or professional, I know you referenced both the Reds and the, um, and the Bengals. Um, but, you know, certainly being as close to, you know, Louisville, University of Louisville as you were, um, 
do you recall going into what would have been what Freedom Hall at the time, uh, some of those first times? Uh, I, I know the first uh, major pro team that I game that I went to was uh, in Riverfront Stadium. We drove up to Cincinnati to see the Reds play. And I was, I'm going to guess, probably about eighth grade or something like that. And uh, it was, it was just magical. It was uh, terrific. And um, it, it was, I guess, kind of felt like the sports version of going into um, Disney's Magic Kingdom for the first time. And it was, um, it was a wonderful, memorable experience i don't think the reds won but we had a great time and we ate the bratwursts and the cracker jack and it was just it was wonderful um would that have been during the the heyday of the reds yes yeah it was you know um when you had pete rose playing third and johnny bench catching and uh the all of you know ken griffey that, that the the amazing team that they had uh, they were pretty much all there when i went you know it was right in that time and i think it was probably um probably right around the time but maybe right after they had uh won the world series yeah i'm right in that time frame i i want to say that i went in 75 or 76 and they you know, certainly won the series both years for the first time and yeah i mean our seats could not have been any further away from the actual field because riverfront stadium was one of those old you know circular bowls with like the seemed like five levels or whatever and we yes. were all the way up in the back and left field and it was i mean the, the players were you know little pixels yes yeah, that, uh, that same here <laughs> but it but... was uh very magical to be there and to see you know you know, Joe Morgan and George Foster and Tony Perez. And, you know, you referenced Bench. He was my personal favorite. I, I was a huge Johnny Bench guy, which is probably the reason why I have crappy knees to this day, because I was a catcher <laughs> for so many years. I can't remember. There was, it was at least five baseballs he could hold in his hand at the same time. Some ridiculous. I think, yeah, I think it was actually seven. If I'm not I, I, which, I, I was thinking it might've been seven, but I didn't want to exaggerate. I, I aired on the low conservative side, but yeah, yeah, I think it was seven just <laughs> at the same time in his hand. So yeah. Um, extraordinary. Now I can also remember the first uh, NFL game I ever went to, which was um, my uncle had a trucking company and, and they haul, he would haul uh, liquid uh, like those big tank liquid tankers, whatever for a company out of Indianapolis. And um, so the company in Indianapolis had a, a professional box and they'd offer my uncle tickets occasionally. And so he didn't, he was not a big football fan or any kind of sports fan. So when I was in college at IU, he said, Hey, you interested in a couple tickets to, to a football game you'd be in the box and it's pretty nice they have food and drinks there and everything i'm like sure so we went and i remember the indianapolis colts were playing the new new england patriots and um 
that it was fourth by by the time we got a little bit into the fourth quarter it was such a blowout with the patriots up i think at that point i don't know 30 some points we decided well let's just beat the crowd and go out to the car and head back to bloomington uh i had my, my girlfriend at the time with me and so we did that but by the time by the time we got to the car the patriots had scored at least two or maybe three more touchdowns and by the time the game was over it turned out to be one for the record books because uh it was the widest winning margin or from our point of view the widest widest losing margin at that point uh, in nfl history and I was there to see most of it, but but not all of it. Well, I wonder by the time you got to the car, was the rest of the uh, the crowd also there? So beating the yeah, traffic, you could maybe, maybe see maybe, this wave of people behind us. I'm gonna say, maybe beating the traffic, the the smart play would have been to remain until the end, and then the traffic would have cleared. But nevertheless, um, right, right, and I was trying to figure out whether not seeing all of the biggest loss of history was actually better than seeing all of it. I, I, I am just not sure. I'm a little conflicted on that. Nevertheless, it's a badge of honor. And, and certainly you can say that you were there and uh, the food was free. Well, that's even better. So, <laughs> so the, there the was ticket, tickets for free. I'm guessing the parking was also free. So it, it was a good event. Yeah. For, for a, a, you know, a broke college student, you, you, you couldn't beat it. Yeah. Um, now you referenced attending IU. Um, did you uh, make your way um, either to Assembly Hall or to uh, Memorial Stadium on any occasions to or any sporting events at, at IU while you were there? Yeah, I went to uh, basketball games. Uh, I don't think I went to football games, and that tra- tracks with their performance, uh, I suppose. I did, though. I did go to the football stadium. Uh, I paid to go into the football stadium, but not to see the football team play. I saw John Mellencamp concert there. Okay. And so that's that's a wonderful memory of the Memorial Stadium. In fact, uh, it was so cool because when he came out to start the concert, of course, he lived very close to Bloomington. When he came out to uh, kick, to open up the concert, he said that uh, it was a special day because it was his grandmother's birthday. And uh, he had his grandmother come out on stage and he introduced his grandmother to all of us. And, uh, and she yodeled for us. So... Mm. My my mem my most vivid memory of Memorial Stadium was uh, John Mellencamp's grandmother yodeling to us uh, on stage at this rock concert. I was going to say, what is, really sweet of him and the, just the kind of guy he was. Yeah, I was going to say, what are the odds of you know going to a Mellencamp concert and a yodeling performance breaks out? That's not one of those things you would ever think would happen. I I, I did not anticipate it, I, and I I did not go for the yodeling. I will admit. I'm actually, I've never seen John Mellencamp, which I'm ashamed to say as a native Hoosier. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, certainly I've, there was a longstanding 
joke in our family that anytime our car would cross the border from either Ohio or Michigan and come into Indiana, no matter the station we were listening to, <laughs> invariably within two or three songs, John would be playing something for us. But I'm, I'm finally, I, I've secured tickets and I will be going to see him perform in Fort Wayne in another week or so. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. I know he is certainly on the on the back end of his career, but I, I still am eager to see him and see him perform in Indiana as opposed to when he's going to be up here a little bit later this summer in, in Royal Oak, Michigan. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it. I doubt that I'm going to get the yodeling experience, but I will be the first to let you know if he does. Uh, please do. I just saw him a week or two ago at the Kentucky Center for the Performing Arts. And I don't know if it was because he had decided he was in a fancy venue or not, but the show opened with about a, I don't know, 20 minutes of, um, of him, kind of an interview with him and the movies that were influential to him. And they'd have scenes from the movies. And I think he was really, you know, influenced by some of the icons like um, James Dean, who was of course from Indiana also and uh, Marlon Brando and some of the sort of um, more rebel kinds of folks. And, and um, so it was, it was interesting. And then when he went into the concert, he's great. His, he's a, he's been smoking since I think he was in high school or earlier and his voice is gruffer now, which brings a certain, um, I don't know what you'd say, kind of earthy of, kind of uh, folksy edge to the music that uh, especially if he does something acoustic, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, well, I'd like to get back to Louisville again. Okay. I'm getting closer to it there. Um, That's good. Certainly um, no professional or no major league teams in the state. So it definitely is a, I think college centric in that regard. Yes. Um, is it is there a specific dividing line between you know Big Blue and the Cardinals, or is it does it just matter by family? How, how does that break down there? I'm always interested in in you know who's rooting for who essentially. Well, it's um, it's a pretty intense relationship, and I guess I'm saying relationship rather than rivalry because I think it goes beyond that like um i went to iu and the other big university was purdue and it was a rival uh but in kentucky i think there there are uh societal dynamics that go beyond just the sports or college rivalry between the one big urban city in an otherwise largely rural state. And um, and that kind of takes it, I think, to another level. And, and just to illustrate the point, uh, Kentucky has 120 counties. We have this evidently the smallest counties of any state in the United States. So we have a bunch of relatively small counties. So Jefferson County is not a very big county uh, because we don't have big counties. But we have about uh, 20% of the state's population in our one county. So uh, from a 
political point of view, if you get most all of Jefferson County, you start off with 20% on your way to 50% plus one, you think can you would think candidates from Jefferson County would do pretty well in statewide races, but the the uh, dynamics between Jefferson County and the rest of the state are such that in the entire history of the state, they have never elected a governor from Jefferson County, not even once. And so that same kind of dynamic, I think, um, plays out with the sports where everywhere else in the state, it's pretty much a sea of blue. Uh, and it's a cultural thing. Like, uh, it, I am told, uh, and I have not seen anything that um, would indicate otherwise, that all of the police vehicles outside of Jefferson County only have blue lights. They don't have red because University of Kentucky's <laughs> color is blue. University of Louisville's color is red. In Louisville, we are like the rest of the country and have red and blue uh, lights on the police vehicles. But outside of Jefferson County, it's blue only. Uh, now, a lot of people in Louisville went to and graduated from University of Kentucky. So it's not a red only thing in Louisville, but there are more U of L fans, I think, in general here than University of Kentucky. So you see a lot more red than you do blue. But uh, I know Joe, when she moved here, she grew up in Georgia lived 20 years, my wife lived 20 years in Arizona, and they had an ASU, and they had rivalries and things like that and sports. Um, she said she did not know people could take college basketball. Again, it's kind of like the movie Hoosiers. She did not know anywhere took college basketball seriously. And it's like, this is the University of Kentucky bar in Louisville, and you're safe to go there in blue, but like, these are, you know, if if these are you, uh, University of Louisville-oriented bars, you just um, you wear blue there at your own own risk. I, I think you know it's your. I it doesn't usually come to fisticuffs, but you you know you're you're not going to have a whole lot of support rooting for your side of the team most places. Understood. Wow, that is a little more, I guess, intense than I had even suspected. Um, but again, I mean, those are the only, I won't say the only, but those are the big shows in town. Um, you know, I, I, I yeah. presume that there are, you know, some Murray State fans and Western Kentucky fans and things of that nature. But by and large, you're, it sounds like you're either a Kentucky fan if you're in most of the state or you're a Louisville fan if you're in Jefferson County. And we do have, like, um we're just across the river. If you thought about it, maybe about a, a quarter or a third of the greater Louisville population is just across the river in Indiana, in New Albany, Jeffersonville, and Clarksville. And those folks are, you know, IU Bloomington fans almost uh, exclusively. Really? So, so you have... It, you have that dynamic too that there there may be but you're a little safer there because if you're wearing red you can come across the river and go to the bar and you're okay now if, it, if you have indiana actually spelled out yeah, but still most people are just going to see the red and uh, make an assumption you'll be okay gotcha 
Um, now, I, I think we'd be remiss in talking to someone who's spent, you know, so much of their adult life in Louisville and, and not talk about um, Muhammad Ali um, and what his presence was like there. I know that, you know, by the time you got there later in life, now maybe when you were younger, it was still something that was significant, but um, he was pretty well done with his professional boxing career, but was still present, I think, down there quite a bit. And there's a lovely museum, if I'm not mistaken, there as well, that I've had the good fortune of visiting once upon a time. So talk to us about the legacy of Muhammad Ali or Cassius Clay as he would have been known when he was younger. Uh, yeah, he he did grow up. Uh, uh, Muhammad Ali grew up as Cassius Clay in Louisville. He went to uh, Central High School where my wife, Joe taught for a number of years. And um, I think he started uh, his boxing, I think, in high school. And um, if you go to, there's a, there's a small um, community local college uh, that um, if you go into there, it's a Spalding University. If you go into Spalding's administrative center, when you go in, there's a red bicycle that just hangs above the doorway because Muhammad Ali used to ride his red bicycle there to train. At that time, he would go there and, uh, and would train to box and so forth before it was not an administrative building at the time. But um, that still hangs because that he would always ride his red bike there. So they kind of memorialized it. And there are a lot of things like that. I had a meeting for the Metro United Way in their headquarters. And we were in this meeting room and they pointed out that that building was um, the first, uh, where the first TV station in uh, Louisville began, WAVE. And in that very room where we were meeting, Muhammad Ali had, like Cassius Clay had televised boxing matches in there. Uh, so there are all these like little idiosyncrasies where you may be at something and there's just this Ali connection that gets mentioned and it's interesting i think when when he was though huge um like in the early 70s in particular early in mid 70s um and was virtually unbeatable i think what well, joe frazier beat him once and uh and then tried two more times and couldn't couldn't do that I think because of the what was going on in society at the time, and he had not gone to Vietnam, and in this area, the Midwest is you know not the avant-garde where the like the the more progressive ideas begin. They uh, may eventually get here, but it's a pretty conservative place in general. A lot of people were pretty negative about him and it's for to have grown up um here and by the time that you know that he was carrying the torch and for the uh, to light the olympics whatever year that was like probably in the 80s or something or and beyond the to see the evolution of 
the going from the community literally in large part rooting against them and sort of almost like wanting to disown them and distance themselves to like embracing them. We've now named our airport after them. We have Muhammad Ali Boulevard downtown, which when they did that, I think that was in the uh, 1980s was still, there was a lot of pushback even then. So I think it really took a, a long time for um, the community to catch up to being proud of him. But now we, we real you know, the whole community, I think really is pretty much. And uh, his legacy is something that people are proud of. And even, you know, some people would call him at the, time, the Louisville mouth, you know, and uh, we're kind of proud of that now, but at the time it was edgier than a lot of people were uh, ready for, I think, but he was in a lot of ways ahead of his time. Yeah. Um, did he, in fact, not that you know this, but did he in fact uh, toss the, the gold medal into the Ohio river? I do not know. I really do not. You know, that was the legend, apparently. And I know that it was returned to his family eventually, or the or duplicate was made or what happened. Uh -huh. I'm not aware. Um, I would say you mentioned the museum, and if anyone yeah. has the chance to go, it's actually, uh, of course, it, it chronicles his boxing career, but more of the focus is on the civil rights movement, of which he was a big part. Uh, and so it's it's much more of a sort of a civil rights museum than it is a sports museum, although it is both. In in my opinion, it's it focuses more on his um, civil and human rights and the pushback and the, like the context of the Vietnam War and mm -hmm. the civil rights movement and and all of that. Yeah, I I would agree. I I wasn't quite sure what to expect when I was able to uh, tour it last fall when I was down there. Um, but I, I came away looking at like he essentially lived almost three lives, it seems like, in terms of his younger times and becoming who he became, and then certainly his professional time. And then at the you know, his post professional career and legacy is you know, perhaps as big or bigger than what he accomplished in the ring. And I'm not really a boxing fan, so I went in not knowing a lot about boxing in general, and I found it to be very much as you said, a, a cultural type of a museum and more of a history museum than, than a boxing museum, which for me was a pleasant surprise because if it was all going to be boxing, I'm not sure I would have enjoyed it as much. Yeah, although on one of the floors, they do have a really cool thing where they you can shadow, they have a light and you can shadow box with him, with his shadow on the wall and your shadow on the wall is kind of cool. Yeah, I noticed that. I, I I think I was knocked out in about five seconds. So yeah, yes, yeah, right. Yeah, um, and then we we're going to get back to Churchill Downs. I promise to anybody who's still with us. But the other thing that's really notable in Louisville is there, there's a, a a baseball bat company there, which is just fascinating to me. And I've been able to tour that as well. But what is that like? If you're able to provide any insights to the folks who are listening, of course, sure. presuming that presuming that you've been there. I have, uh, although they have just like completely redone it and I have not been since they've redone it. So I understand it's a, it was a pretty major uh, overhaul of the museum. It's the Hillrich and Bradsby company makes Louisville Slugger bats. 
They started in Louisville making Louisville Slugger bats. For whatever reason, they spent a number of years um, in exile over in Jeffersonville, Indiana, making Louisville Slugger bats. But they are back uh, where they belong on our side of the river. And the bat factory itself, which as a union person, I'm proud to say, is uh, a union shop with uh, United Steelworkers representing the uh, workers there. And when I did my tour, they said the average age, uh, the, the average uh, experience of the employees there, the uh, United Steelworkers that worked there was 35 years on average uh, of uh, experience with the company. So it must be a pretty good place to work because folks stay there. So they have a factory, but they uh, you tour the factory and they are making bats right there so you get to see the whole process but they have made it also a uh, museum to baseball and so you can see the the actual bats that people like Babe Ruth um, used and they show you how you know they burn their signatures in and they will tell you about the idiosyncrasies like some major league players like the end of their bat hollowed out uh which moves the center of gravity of the bat to right where they want it. And so there are all these kind of really uh, wonky technical aspects of it uh, that are cool, but uh, it's a, it's a fun museum to go through because you're seeing the bats made, but you're also kind of learning about some of these quirks about just how particular per certain players are with their bats and, and all of that. And then I don't know if they still do this, but my favorite part of the whole thing is when you get to the very end, uh, they have you in this final room and they thank you for coming and they give everybody uh, a little, uh, maybe about 18 inch long miniature Louisville Slugger bat, including every little kid that's there. Then they open the doors and release everybody into the gift shop where they do have breakable things and watching the parents chase their little like three-year-old who has a 18 inch Louisville Slugger bat look like running straight for the crystal things and porcelain things that you can buy is it's a particular kind of entertainment that you can only get at the Louisville Slugger Museum. So I highly recommend it. Well, and I'm sure that you like to go in there right after you've done the tour at Evan Williams uh, Bourbon <laughs> Museum so that you got a little shine on maybe so it's even better sport. As that makes it, it even better. You have a few, we have developed in what we call the Urban Bourbon Trail. So you can make a couple stops along the Urban Bourbon Trail on the same main, they are on Main Street, a number of them, uh, within a block or two or three of the Slugger Museum. So you can uh, enhance your experience there with another Kentucky uh, uh, staple. Well, that seems as good a spot as any to to pivot and move to the Kentucky Derby, which I believe this year, in addition to it being the 50th anniversary of Secretariat's win, is also the 150th running this year. Is that is that what I saw on my Woodford Reserve display at my local liquor store? Uh I was thinking this was 149 and next year was 150. Oh, okay. Well, regardless, it's been around for a while, Brent. <laughs> um, you've Have you attended any? And if so, what has that experience been like? I have. Uh, I first went to the Kentucky Derby when I, between my junior and senior years in high school, 
And of course, I went to the infield, uh, which is a completely different experience than going, you have basically two options. You can go to the infield, which is uh, sort of like the Kentucky Derby version of um, Woodstock, uh, or you can go to the Derby on the not in the infield, we're in the stands somewhere or the other. And that's a completely, completely different experience. If you are in the stands, you can walk over and visit the infield, but only generally people with very poor judgment are at the end of the day who've had way too much to drink even think about doing that because they're probably in something nice and, um, uh, well, they're probably wearing something nice, which may not be as nice when they get back. So, that that's that was my experience my first experience i think it was like 1980 summer of 1980 going into the infield and actually back then the infield was a fair bit bigger than it is now because around 1985 or so they added a turf track inside the uh dirt track where they run the derby so that took up a fair bit of the real estate on the in the infield, but it's still a large infield. Like they can hold over a hundred thousand people in there, and they uh, probably have that for the uh, derby, a normal you know derby that's not mm -hmm. COVID impacted or something like that. So um, it's it's a you know it's a pretty cool experience. Uh, anyone that's like uh, under thirty would probably have a great time in the infield and. You know, if you're over 30, you might also. But when I first went, they let you haul in, you know, uh, coolers full of anything that you wanted to bring. It cost $10 to go in. And um, it was very different than now you are not allowed to take any liquor in, not because they don't want people drinking, but because they only want people buying their liquor. Um, in fact, when I first moved to Louisville, um, I remember when I moved back to Louisville from teaching in Indianapolis, I remember being with other teachers at lunch and saying, hey, is it true that they don't let you take liquor into the infield anymore? And the, like all around the table where the other teachers were sitting, they said, uh, oh, yeah, that's right. They they stopped that a few years ago. And, but the teacher across from me said, yeah, but if you get a loaf of bread and you take you like you're like you're going to make sandwiches, you can reach in there and dig out the a big hole and just put whatever you want inside the the loaf of bread. Then the teacher sitting next to that teacher said, "Oh, I have these binoculars that I wear, but you screw they aren't really binoculars. You screw the lenses off and it actually you can put two different liquors in each of the lenses on the binoculars." The other teacher saying next to me said, oh, well, what I do is I have this like syringe and I just put vodka straight into oranges and I take a whole bag of oranges and I just squeeze the oranges and I get screwdrivers just like they're really very fresh. The one on the other side of me said, oh, I do that, but I use a watermelon. And every teacher, <laughs> I didn't ask like, how do you get around? I just asked, did they, did they? actually prohibit this but every teacher had a solution to this problem that i hadn't even asked for so that that was my first experience was the infield but it has changed it now costs i think uh 50 or 55 dollars to get in the infield it's not 10 bucks anymore like i when i went uh, still trying to recover 
from the ingenuity <laughs> of classroom teachers, but I guess I should not be surprised um, because that's been we could do a lot with teachers do sticky for, tape. Yeah. I tell you exactly. Um, so that was your first experience. Have you been back? Have you been on the other side of the track? Have you been in the in the grandstands? Yes, um, I. In fact, uh, last year's Derby, um, my wife Joe got us tickets for both. Oaks and Derby, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But mm-hmm. um, we were we were at the Derby, and uh, we were with um, a couple sets of friends of hers. One set from uh, Arizona, and one set from uh, Georgia. And um, and last year's Derby winner, I think it was Rich Strike, mm-hmm. um, was like a ninety nine to one long shot, and um, there was some connection. I don't remember whether it was the horse's name or the jockey's name or what or the or what it was, but uh, one of the friends that went with us bet on and won on the like ninety nine to one long shot. So that was pretty cool. Now you referenced the Oaks, which is that run the day before or something like that. Yes. Um, and so, of course, the Derby is always the first Saturday in May. So you can count unless, you know, there's I think it wasn't during World War Two for some reason or something. And during COVID, they moved it to the fall. So other than I think two times in its history, it's always been the first uh, Saturday in May. The day right before the Kentucky Derby um, is the known as the Kentucky Oaks. And it is like the Derby, but it is only for female horses known as fillies. So the Derby is known as the run for the roses because you get this this blanket garland of roses Mm -hmm. draped across the horse if you win. They do that for uh, the Oaks, but it's a a garland of lilies. So Mm -hmm. Those they refer to as lilies for the fillies. So it's the female horses. And that female horse uh, connection um, has led to a partnership between Churchill Downs and the Susan G. Komen um, breast cancer um, uh, group that raises lots and lots of money for breast cancer research and supporting individuals that are fighting breast cancer and all of that. So the uh, Kentucky Oaks, the day before the Derby, is a <clears throat> a major fundraiser for the Susan G. Komen Foundation. And in fact, there's a part during the day that's really touching where they have uh, breast cancer survivors that walk the track and everyone just cheers and cries. And um, it's, it's, it's a pretty moving experience uh, in and of itself. But it used to be, uh, back when you were paid $10 to go in the infield, that the Derby was like where everyone from out of town came to check it off their bucket list. And all the locals would go the day before uh, to the Oaks. But the Oaks has become so big. And, you know, fashion is a huge part of it and people dress up. But because it's the focus is on breast cancer and the Susan G. Komen pink ribbon and all that, Everyone wears pink uh, on the to the Kentucky Oaks, 
And so there's just all this sea of pink everywhere. And, and it's become a really such a big deal now that folks will come in from out of town and go to both of those. And so the locals now have started going on Thursdays, which did not have a name, but now they call it Thurby. So Thursday before Derby is locally referred to as Thurby. And the, the local folks tend to go to Thurby and then avoid the crowd on Oaks and Derby. Now, what is happening at Thurby? Is it just like a regular day of racing? Basically? It's largely a regular day of racing. You know, um, of course, the crowds are bigger because there are still a lot more people. All of Derby Week, there's just a ton of people here, but uh, but it's much closer to a regular day of uh, of racing with just more folks. And for someone who is you know pretty oblivious to all of it, what how many how many races are we talking about on a well on the Oaks Day and then on Derby Day and then certainly on just a regular ordinary day of racing? Do you happen to know that? I think there are typically uh, 12 races and they're going to run probably about every 45 minutes or so, something like that, 10 to 12 races, uh, but typically about a dozen races. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's a nice pacing where you have plenty of time uh, to um, get something to eat or drink and sit down and figure out what you're going to, you're going to bet on and all of that. If you're, if you're a betting person, and um, so it's kind of a, a pretty relaxed pace between one race and the next. Yeah. Uh, did um, you, you reference the the haberdashery or the outfits? And certainly they are of legend when you're watching from several hundred miles away, like I usually am. Um, what was the uh, outfit of choice for Brent McKim when he was uh, there last year. I, I'm I'm curious. Can you give us some sort of a description of this? All right. So um, my my wife sometimes sometimes I say my wife Joe dresses me better some days than others. Well, she was uh, particularly delighted to help me pick out my uh, suit for um, the Oaks Day when we were when it, the focus was pink. I yeah literally had a pink plaid suit uh, with white shoes. And um, it was, it, it, it was uh, not something I would normally wear, but you know, you fit right in and people don't even bat an eye because all the men are wearing something about like that. Uh, and so it's, it's that it's, it is actually a lot of fun just to people watch and see the just awesome fashion that people are wearing. And some of it's beautiful and some of it's comical and some of it is a lot of it is somewhere in between. Yeah. Now, was that a rental or did you, uh, was it a purchase? Uh, I now own a pink plaid suit. Yes. And, um, and has, uh, there, has there a been another rested pink plaid yeah. suit? Has so, there been another occasion where that has come out of the closet for you to go and and wear it somewhere. I, I am delighted to say that there has not yet been. Now on Derby Day, though, I wore the classic blue and white seersucker suit with a, yeah. the straw hat. And although I haven't worn the straw hat since Derby, I have worn the seersucker suit occasionally, and that that one gets a little more utility. 
I, I would be remiss if I didn't have a callback to a part of our earlier discussion here. Blue and white, that would refer then to the Wildcats, would it not? Is that was that allowable? It's it was a very pastel pale okay. blue. So uh if it did, it was uh it was very dilute. Okay, very good. <laughs> there, there was one more thing on my list of items that I wanted to talk about today, um, because it's not too often that we have someone who is in, you know, the heart of, you know, an event like this. The, if I recall, the official drink of the Kentucky Derby is the mint julep. That's right. And again, we're totally unscripted here, so you're not prepared for this at all. But do you have any idea how that came to be? And, um, what goes into said drink? Uh, it seems to go way back to very early in Derby history. They were making and selling these mint juleps. I think it had lar largely to do with what was available at the time. The A mint julep is essentially um, bourbon with... Um, what I would call sonic ice, if you've been to, ever to a sonic oh, ride, yeah. Yeah. and they have that really satisfying, it's almost like snow cone ice, but not quite snow cone ice. Um, they have that ice in there. It's bourbon and a lot of mint simple syrup, which is basically simple syrup is just uh, you heat up water and dissolve as much sugar into it as you can, and you've got simple syrup. Uh, and with this, you would throw mint in with the simple syrup. So they could make a, a lot of this for a lot of people. You just have big giant vats of uh, water boiling with sugar in it, throw a bunch of mint in there, and you've got mint, simple syrup, um, got your ice, you got your uh, bourbon, and then they will put a sprig of fresh mint in the drink to top it off. All of this goes into a collector derby glass. So if you buy a mint julep, you're going to get the, the Kentucky Derby glass, uh, which they've been largely the same. You can go back and see them from the 1950s. And, and uh, well, be, before that, it's a very classic, just kind of like a Tom Collins looking glass that you get with your mint juleps. And uh, depending on how many mint juleps you get, you can have a whole, people go home with entire, sets of uh derby glasses and they have all of the winners of the derby on there and by by year and they you know they have to increasingly reduce the font size to make this work but they're still able to do it at this point and um there was a uh, one year i'm going to say maybe 2018 where uh, Baffert's horse tested, you know, flag, got flagged on drug testing. So the next year, the Derby winner space was uh, just blank. And those are a little more collectible. People collect the, the Derby glasses and they're pretty thin. They are literally glass. Uh, so they're easy to break. And so I guess if the value of something, if if it tends to, the number of them diminishes over time, maybe the value gets worth more. But the ones that have the just blank because it was yet to be litig literally litigated who won, uh, that made that an extra collector's piece. 
They've always pretty much always been glass, except uh, during World War II, because of rationing and so forth, um, they were this kind of weird primitive plastic. It wasn't quite Bakelite, but it was something kind of like uh, Bakelite. They were kind of like, uh, col they looked like speckled plastic and don't they didn't look like any other derby glasses. So those are particularly collectible. Huh, interesting. Um, are you a mint julep guy or would you uh, go another direction with the uh, the native liquor of Kentucky? I actually do like mint juleps. And at the Derby, what they at least, um, unless they change, what they do is they actually have the old Forester mint julep, which is good. That's what they they pour straight from the old Forester mint julep bottle into the the special ice and just put the sprig of mint in there. And that's what they serve you um, at the Derby. So that that's a real easy solution that you can get at the liquor store and it's good. Uh, so you don't have to like do a whole lot to have a mint julep that, and I, I like them now. I, I also really like old fashions and you can certainly get those at the Derby too. They probably aren't going to come in the, the mint julep class, by the way, they did invent a special drink, uh, the, for the julep, you can get a, um, a like a uh, special drink for the the Kentucky Oaks, and I think they call it the julep. And it's more it's a vodka based with some cranberry, so maybe kind of a think of a twist on a on a uh, man uh, on a uh, cosmopolitan, but in a in a glass that's kind of one of those stemless wine glasses that shape. Hmm. And there's a unique shape, a unique glass for the oaks now. The oak silly. Yeah, yeah. Now, again, because you're, you know, living literally um, not too far away from Bourbon County. Um, <laughs> what What is, you know, just for those out there that are interested in, in maybe sampling um, a bourbon at some point and never have, or those of us that have and would love to in, improve our game as someone who lives there and is surrounded by it, you know, all day long. Uh, what is your preferred um, distillers? I will tell you, but first you mentioned Bourbon County. So I, I have to just uh, flag the irony that in Kentucky, we still have wet and dry counties sure. with dry, meaning they don't sell liquor there and yeah. wet, meaning they do. You also have moist counties that will sell to you, but only at a restaurant or what have you. So uh, the ironic thing is bourbon counties actually, I think until very recently was one of the dry counties in Kentucky versus Christian County, which was a wet county, uh, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> it's usually it's the, the, the Baptists and the the churches that have a large part in why the counties are dry, but it, uh, I I digress. Uh, it with regard to bourbons of choice, one that's accessible to folks that I would recommend is the Four Roses Small Batch. Uh, you can get the regular sort of inexpensive Four Roses. You can get Four Roses Small Batch, which is 
a little more expensive, but it's not terribly expensive. I think like maybe $35, dollars $30, $35 a bottle, something like that. Maybe not even that uh, if you find a, a good deal on it. And then you can buy the Four Roses single barrel, which is more expensive, but I would recommend the the um, small batch because the single barrel, um, depending on which bottle you get, it comes out of a single barrel and they have different mixes. Uh, like when they make bourbon, they use different kinds of yeast uh, from one barrel to another. Sometimes they use um, different ratios of corn to uh, to barley, to uh, wheat, if they use it, to rye. And depending on which single barrel bottle you get, you may get a mix you like, and you go back and buy another, and then you get a different mix, and it doesn't taste the same because it actually isn't the same. But the small batch, they, they take, uh, I think, about eight different uh, mash mixes and always put it together in the same ratio. So it's always incredibly reliable to get the small batch and a little less expensive than the single barrel. Now, my personal favorite is uh, from more of a boutique distillery called Willet. And it comes in a what they call a pot still bottle that is the shape of their pot still that they use. At the, it's a family owned distillery down in the Bardstown, near Bardstown and Kentucky. And I call it the I Dream of Genie bottle. It kind of looks like that shape. It's pretty <laughs> unique if you see it. It's easy to spot in a liquor store. There's no other bottle that looks quite like it. And I think it's particularly good. It It is what's called a wheated bourbon, which means it has no rye in it. It, it has wheat only with the corn and the and the uh, barley or what have you. And that makes it particularly smooth and mellow. Just like rye bread, you know, is a, is a little more of an edge to it versus wheat bread. The rye that they, 95% of bourbon has rye in it. And if it has enough rye, they call it a rye. But even if it's not called a rye, it's going to have rye in it 95% of the time. But the uh, Willet is a weeded bourbon, as is Pappy Van Winkle. Uh, and that makes it really... Uh, un, unusual and I think really smooth. Wow. Thank you, Brent. That was um, some good knowledge there. I have, I, I happen to have a bottle or two of uh, Willet on, in my personal bar. I don't have any four roses, small batch, and I may have to remedy that uh, before, um, you know, we, we go to post time. On hey, you have to let me know if you do what you think. I like it a lot. Thanks. One other thing about the Four yeah. Roses I'll mention real quickly is most um, bourbon distilleries will have these rick houses where they store the barrels for four years to 20 years or more. And they are several stories, like typically maybe five stories tall. One thing that's unusual about Four Roses is theirs are all like uh, one story tall, which means there's much less of a heat gradient, which also tends to like... The generally the best bourbons for the most part are from the lower part of the rick houses where it doesn't get as hot in the summer. Some places rotate them, but that's like most do not. But the Four Roses is also super predictably reliably good because 
they're all like uh, ranch style uh, on level uh, uh, rick houses. Interesting. Well, mm-hmm. well, I cannot thank you enough for the gift of time, my friend. Uh, this was a lot of fun. And it's been really enjoyable to kind of get to know uh, Louisville through your eyes and, and your expertise and um, a few other little uh, side trips along the way. Anything? Well, it's been a, Go ahead. It's been a pleasure to uh, be able to chat with you. And I will say, if you, if any of the listeners are thinking about going to the Derby, the Derby is not just an event, it's a season. And if you can get to Louisville, like a week in advance, there's just a ton of cool stuff. I mean, really, it's an entire month in advance, but especially we a week to 10 days before the Derby. There are all kinds of really cool things. Like we have a steamboat that was built in the late 1800s, and we have a great steamboat race where a couple other steamboats come up and they race. We have a balloon glow. We have the largest um, uh, uh, fireworks display in the whole world uh, with that they call Thunder Over Louisville. They have this air show where that goes with that during the day leading up to the uh, fireworks. Uh, there's just a lot of things happening all over town. Balloon glow at nighttime where you can go out and people with hot air balloons light them up at night. It's gorgeous. And then they have a balloon race the next day and Uh, that sort of thing so it's a whole it's a season if you can get there a few days early there's some really fun things going on well i will have to recalibrate my future calendars to make sure that i'm not just there for you know a friday saturday sunday but i'm there a little bit longer it sounds like a great time it's a fun it's a cool place it's a it's a nice place to live and it's it's pretty wonderful that we have um all these things going on to uh, make life a little more interesting in April and May. Yeah. Thanks again, Brent. This is great. My pleasure. Thanks. Conversations with sports fans is a production of the sports fan project. Our theme music is fittingly entitled wooden championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at the for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen.